Brother Sam, and that will be our focus this evening, this passage uh, from the life of our Lord, Luke 13, 22 through uh, 30. The idea here uh, that we want to look at is to recognize something we already know. The way of the Lord is not easy. That's the ideal behind what we'll say this evening. The way of the Lord is not easy. It's not easy to be His servant. It is not easy uh, to follow Him. It is not easy to be in His kingdom. It is not easy to get to heaven. And this is brought out in this particular paragraph. Appreciate uh, the good reading of Scripture here. So simply we want to notice some reasons from this paragraph why the way of the Lord is not easy. Why the way of the Lord is not easy. First of all, because of the example of Jesus. Notice here in verse 22. Notice here in verse 22 what Jesus is all about. It says, He went on His way through the towns and the villages, uh, teaching uh, throughout these places. And notice here that He is traveling and making His way toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem. That is the Lord's appointed place. And this is mentioned several times throughout uh, the life of Jesus, especially here uh, in the book of Luke. Look in your Bible, let your eyes go down to verse 33 of the same chapter, Luke 13, uh, 33, where Jesus says, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus is saying, this prophet right here, I myself, I must perish. And I must perish in Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, the comment is made there that Jesus set His face to go to Jerusalem. So this is His appointed place. Okay. That phrase is, is interesting, to set His face. Behind that phrase is a, is a determination. Okay. There's a couple of illustrations I'd like to bring forward about this. Way back in uh, 2 Kings 12, in verse 19, we run into an evil king of Syria, Syria named Jael, and then the king of Judah, uh, not much better himself, uh, Jehoash. And so Jehoash uh, has been watching king of Assyria named Jael. And so the king of Syria had gone to Gath and had pretty much plundered it. And now the text says, 2 Kings 12, 12 and 17, that Jael from Syria has set his face toward Judah. Toward Judah. And so in reaction to that, King of Judah, Jehoash, he sends all the precious gifts that he has and all the precious gifts of the kings before him and all the gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord. He goes ahead and sends that to the king of Syria. And the king of Syria, Jael, decided not to come to Judah after all. Well, another illustration of this is Jeremiah 42 and verse 15 where God is noticing that several of his people 
uh, still there in the homeland where uh, they had their face set to go to Egypt. Okay. And God's intention, yes, was to take his people away into Babylonian captivity, but after 70 years, bring them back to the land and build them back up again. And if the people left and went to Egypt, then that would interrupt his plan. And so he told them, look, I know your face is set to go to Egypt. I know there's famine in the land. Things look pretty bad now. But if you go to Egypt, then my punishment is going to be even sore on you uh, there. So stay in the land and have faith in me. The idea here is to see the phrase, set his face. The people had set their face to go to Egypt and flee their own homeland. Jael had set his face to come to Judah, but somehow Jehoash was able to, to defend him off or to encourage him to stay away with his gifts. Jesus had set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was determined to go. And it was a difficult choice to make because we know what happens at Jerusalem. Jesus will suffer for us. He will be tortured for us. He will be crucified for us. But nonetheless, he would go ahead and go, and he did. Now, along the way, there are suggestions made to Jesus that he could find an easier way. You remember when Satan met Jesus in the wilderness... We read about this in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. But Jesus is in the the midst of a fast, 40 days of not eating. And he's doing this to dedicate himself to the will of God. And the devil says to Jesus, "There's, there's an easier way. If you be the Son of God, you can command these stones to be made bread. And the temptation here from Satan wasn't just about the bread. It wasn't just about the fast. He was saying to Jesus, you can find an easier way. You're the son of God, after all. You can find an easier way to make things happen on this earth for you. Perhaps Jesus ran into this temptation again when he was hanging on the cross. We read about it in Matthew 27, along about 44 and 45. The people were mocking him, and looking up to him as he hung on the cross. And they were saying to him, you who said you could tear down the temple and build it back in three days, you who are the Son of God, bring yourself down from that cross. Okay. Now let me ask you, could Jesus have avoided the cross? Could Jesus have brought himself down from the cross? Well, we know absolutely that he had absolute power, and he could very well do this. We remember just a chapter before in Matthew 26, that he had told Peter to put up his sword. You know, Do you not know at this time I could call 12 legions of angels and come? Okay. But he, was, he had his face set toward Jerusalem. He would choose the difficult path, even though Satan would often tempt him with an easier way. And so because of the example of Jesus, the way is not easy. And then secondly, I want us to notice that because salvation itself is not easy, because salvation itself is not easy, then the way of Jesus is not easy. Okay. Notice the man that approaches Jesus. He's going to ask him, he's going to ask him a question. Okay. Let me ask you, if you had a chance to stand right before Jesus and ask him a question, what would you ask? What would you ask? This man and others asked Jesus about salvation. And it's interesting the answers that Jesus would give. 
Think about this with me. Look over in your Bibles to Luke 10 in verse 25. And there's a lawyer there. And his first question to Jesus is, what is it that we should do to inherit eternal life? Isn't that what he asked? Luke 10, verse 25. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus is going to say, love your God with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he's going to ask, well, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus gives him the parable of the Good Samaritan. But look at the Good Samaritan beginning in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, Luke 10, 33, came to where the man was, the man who was left uh, robbed and half dead. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine upon him. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii out, gave it to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Well, notice the trouble that the Samaritan went to. So in asking this question, Jesus gives him a tough answer. In Matthew chapter 19 and verse 16, the rich young ruler asked a similar question. What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus began to talk to him about the, the commandments, as you remember, the Old Testament commandments. But the answer he eventually gives the rich young ruler is a tough answer. It's a tough answer. Okay? It's not an easy answer. What did he say? What did he say? One thing you lack. What? One thing you lack. Go sell all you have. Give it to the poor. Take up your cross and follow me. And then you'll be rich toward God. And he walked away from Jesus because he was attached to his possessions. But when you notice that salvation is not easy. There are several people in in the earthly life of Jesus that came and asked him about salvation. Each time the answer is given... It's not an easy answer. In fact, stay right there in Matthew 19. Stay right there. And the disciples have a question for Jesus. Okay. Notice right there in Matthew 19, they're going to ask in verse 25, Well, Lord, well, who can be saved? Okay. If you're not going to accept this guy into your ways, then, then who can be saved? I like what the Lord said after the... Ruler walked away from him. Matthew nineteen twenty three. Jesus said to his disciples, "Today I say unto you, that with difficulty, with difficulty, will a rich man, rich person, enter into the kingdom of heaven? Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven." Then they asked, when they heard this, they asked, with, they were greatly astonished, "Lord, who then can be saved?" And the Lord answered back. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So the fact is, salvation itself is not easy. And we see this with these different questions being asked of of Jesus about salvation. Now, just for a second, let your mind go into the book of Acts and think about the questions about salvation there. On the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, 36 and 37, as the people heard... Uh, Peter's sermon, they were pricked in their heart, as you recall. And they asked, men and brethren, what shall we do? 
Well, Peter's first response is not easy. Okay? Repent. Repent. Okay? You have to admit that you're wrong. Okay? See you're wrong. See that God condemns it. And then turn from that wrong and commit to Him and be ready to obey further. Repent. Repent. And be baptized, he said. Saul's conversion is also not an easy answer. Saul was recalling his conversion before some of the leaders in Acts 22. And as he's walking and doing his work on the way to uh, Damascus, the Lord appeared unto him. And you remember the two questions that Saul asked the Lord at first. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Okay. And then he asked, Lord, what would you have me to do? Acts 22, verse 10. What did the Lord say? The Lord said, go on into the city of Damascus and there's someone appointed there. I'm, I'm grabbing somebody. I'm appointing somebody. Ananias by name. He's going to come. He's going to tell you what you must do. Okay. Now, Ananias had some reservations, didn't he? When you look back at Acts chapter 9, Ananias had some reservations about going and doing this mission, but he does go anyway. The Lord explains to Ananias in Acts, um, in Acts chapter 9, picking up here in about verse uh, 15. The Lord said to him, Go, for, for Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You see, Saul asked, What must I do? Well, Ananias is going to come and tell him, Look, you've got to get yourself up, get yourself baptized. This will wash away your sins, and you can start the process of calling on the name of the Lord. But there was much more waiting on, on Paul, on Saul. He would need to carry the name of Jesus everywhere, and he would suffer for that name. Simply saying all this to say that salvation itself is not easy. When you look at all the questions asked of Jesus concerning salvation, every time Jesus answered, it wasn't easy. It wasn't an easy answer. Every answer Jesus gives is the right answer. He never gave the wrong answer. But Jesus also never gave an easy answer. And so because salvation is not easy, we know the way of the Lord is not easy. A third reason, a third reason the way of the Lord is not easy is because there's, there's temptations to speculation. There's the old temptation to speculation. Speculation has to do with those thoughts and questions that really sidetrack people. Really sidetrack people. There is the path that we should be on. And then there are these little sidetrack, these little side paths okay, that you probably don't need to take. Okay. There's the temptation to speculate. This person here in Luke 13, going back to our Bibles here, in Luke 13, he comes to Jesus and he asks this question, will there be few who are saved? Will there be few who are saved? This fellow is not so much interested, interested in, the, in the mysteries of salvation as he is the number, the number of salvation. This is more a question of just interest to him. He just wants to know, what about the number of those 
being saved. And Jesus doesn't give him the answer he's looking for. Okay. I believe this fella is a little bit sidetracked. Okay. It's easy to happen. So how is, why is it that we are so easily distracted? This is a distracted question. In the letters of Paul to Timothy, Paul repeats himself several times about this kind of thing. He says, for example, in 2 Timothy 2 and 24, that the servant of the Lord must not strive and he must not be quarrelsome. He cannot be full of quarrels and questions. Back in 2 Timothy 2 verse 14, he said, don't be quarreling over words to no profit. 2 Timothy Timothy 2 and verse 16 He says, don't be caught up in what he calls irreverent babble. Now, right there in the midst of 2 Timothy 2, 14 and 16 is a verse we referred to this morning, 2 Timothy 2, 15, which says to study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, how do we know how to stay on track as far as our studies, as far as our thoughts go? Well, we study and we focus on those things that will cause us to be approved unto God. Okay? If it is pleasing to God, if I am looking at something that I know that will please my Lord, then I'm, I'm not sidetracked. But any other question or any other thought or any other line of reasoning uh, turns out to be what Paul calls irreverent babble. Okay? Words to no profit. Okay? And because it is such an inclination of people like you and me and like others throughout the world to get sidetracked by speculation, then that makes the way of Jesus sometimes even harder. Okay. So the third reason is a temptation to a speculation. The fourth reason is because Jesus said to strive, right? Luke 13, verse 24 here, he says to strive. Now the definition of strive is to struggle, is to struggle. The definition of, of strive is literally to agonize. To agonize. It is to make every effort uh, to do something. Not just to make one effort or two efforts, but to make every effort to get something done. Agonize. Strive. Okay, this is why we know the way of the Lord is not easy. <coughs> If you are one of those who would head to a stadium full of 100,000 fans and you've got your ticket and you arrive on game day, you're going to be striving because you've got your ticket, but that's just the beginning of the process. You've got to go into that big stadium of tens of thousands of people and you've got to find your seat. You've got to squeeze your way in and squirm your way in and look and study, look and study and make sure you're on the right row, you're on the right path. You are striving, you are agonizing to get in to find your seat. That's the idea behind what Jesus is saying here. To strive, to strive. In Noah's day, we read about Noah Second Peter 2 and verse 5, that he was a preacher of righteousness. He had a dual job responsibility before God to, to build that ark according to God's uh, ideas, but also to preach and to warn people and to talk to people about the righteousness of God and the, 
and the flood that was coming. And so the people in Noah's day, because only, only Noah and his family, eight souls were saved by water, only Noah and his family were, were saved, there was a lot of people there who did not strive. A lot of people who did not strive. Can you imagine people after the door to that ark was shut? Can you imagine the screams of people who had their opportunity, but they did not strive? Did not strive. Most likely Judas is listening to this conversation here in Luke 13, and Judas is one who did not strive, really strive. There's an interesting little phrase over in Hebrews 12 and um, verse 15. The New King James Version has the first phrase of that verse. It has, look very carefully to make sure you do not fail to obtain the grace of God. Okay. Look very carefully. That's our phrase there. Look very carefully. The English Standard Version says it like this. You see to it that you do, not, you do not fail to obtain the grace of God. Okay. Notice how very personal this striving is. Notice how personal it is. Think again with me with this, this man who comes up to Jesus. And he has this question, well, will few be saved? Okay. What does Jesus say? You need to strive to enter into the narrow door. Okay. He doesn't want to talk about numbers. Okay. Jesus does not follow his question with numbers. He says, you need to make sure you're part of this number. Okay. You need to quit worrying about numbers. You need to look at yourself and strive. Do you realize? And the indication here is that probably this man did not realize the agony and struggle it takes to get into the way of God and to stay there and to complete your course. Okay. And so notice this in regard to Hebrews 12, verse 15. You see to it. Okay. You look very carefully. You see to it that you are in the way of the grace of God, that you're, you're following the ways of our Lord. You see to it. You see to it that you're at church. You see to it that you're at class. You see to it that you're praying several times a day. You see to it that your scriptures are open. You see to it that your children are studying the word of God. You see to it that you are talking uh, to others about the gospel. You see to it that your light is shining. You see to this. There is a personal responsibility in this idea of striving uh, to enter in. You remember when Jesus resurrected, walking on the earth. He has this conversation in John 21 with Peter and about love and feed my sheep. Right after that, he tells Peter, now there are day, the days coming when, you know, right now you're able to put on your own clothes and feed yourself and go your way. Peter, toward the end of your life, somebody else is going to be feeding you. Somebody else is going to be clothing you. Somebody else is going to be leading you around. Jesus was showing Peter, look, some rough days are coming. And then he looked to Peter and said, John 21, 18 and 19, follow me, follow me. It's going to get rough. Peter, you follow me. And then Peter saw John, a very close disciple to Jesus. And Peter saw John and said, well, Lord, what about John? 
And the Lord kind of rebuked him there. He said, what is that to you? If I decide for John to remain on earth for a very, very long time, what is that to you? You follow me. And so because Jesus says to strive, and to strive in a very personal way, then we know the way is not easy. And number five, the reason is the way, not, the way is not easy because the door is narrow. The door is narrow. The gate is straight, the door is narrow. Now, first notice it, it's a door. It's a door. When Jesus uses the word door, it's most commonly referring to a door to salvation. For example, in John 10, verse 9, Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. He that enters in by me uh, will be saved, and he'll find pasture to be able to roam around in. Door of salvation. But notice it's a door. It's a door. And with a door, the indication is you're either in or you're out. You're either on one side of the wall or you're on the other side of the wall. Jesus said, strive to enter in through the narrow door. Now, the idea of narrow doesn't set well with our society today. You know, Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father. No man can find the way. No man can find peace without me. That doesn't set well in our society. We have what we... You know, sometimes referred to as a pluralistic society. Plural meaning many, of course. And the ideal behind our society is that every ideal, every statement has equal value. Every insight, every angle has equal value unless you're coming from the standpoint of the Bible, of course. And all of a sudden that doesn't have equal value. But that's the world that we live in. But nonetheless, there it is still in Scripture Enter ye in by the narrow door. Narrow door. It's important to get this right. That's what Jesus is saying to us. It's important to get this right. <clears throat> I, I'm not particularly a, flan, a, 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 a fan of flying. I'm not, I'm not a fan of flying. I mean, I'll do it. I have done it. been to California, North Carolina few places around. No, I'm not a fan of that. But I have watched the pilot as he come into Nashville on a very clear night. And I was watching out the window and, and I saw the runway. And I saw him easing. But he wasn't lining up with the runway. And I just wanted to go up there and say, well, it's about time to line up with this runway here. There it is. You know. But I was still learning. And he just sort of hovered over the city Hovered over the city until I, I suppose he was waiting for, the, for his indication from the ground. And then he lined up for a runway. With well, the airplane pilot, we want them not just to get to the right city and not just to get to the general area where the runway is. We want them to get on that runway. It's important to get that right. Some things we cannot miss. And that's what Jesus is saying here. We cannot miss. The, the door is narrow but we don't need to miss that door. And then the next reason why 
the way is not easy is because time is limited. Notice here in Luke 13 that Sam read for us, verse 25 especially, time is limited. He says, when the master of the house, verse 25, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open us, then he will say to you, I do not know where you have come from. Okay. There's a time limitation to this. Okay. Time is limited by our life on earth. Time may be limited. We don't know when Jesus will come again. The time for us to start following the Lord, striving, giving our energy, giving our dedication to Him, of course, is now. It's now. Afterwards, after the Lord comes, after our life on earth is over, all the pleading in the world not going to avail. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 2, behold, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. There was a, there's an old poem that came to mind. I'm going to see if I can pull it up. <coughs> Something like, when in sin you longer wait, you may find no open gate. Maybe that's not quite it. But if in sin you longer wait, you may find no open gate. Jesus is saying, don't get distracted. Remember, uh, time is going to be up one of these days. The door will be shut. When the master of the house rises up and shuts the door, then that's, that's it. That's it. Stories told of uh, supposedly Satan has a meeting with uh, some uh, demon learners. Okay. And um, the same question is before them at every meeting, and that is, how can we ruin human beings? How can we destroy human beings? Okay. So the devil says, I want to hear your, your ideas get going. And so one speaks up and says, well, let's just start telling them there's no heaven. There's no such thing as heaven. Satan says, no, that won't work. God is way too good. Everybody knows he's too good. Uh, he's, he's shown his goodness, so that won't work to tell him there's no heaven. Another speaks up and says, well, let's just tell him there's no hell. Let's just tell him there's no hell. Satan says, no, that won't work either. We know God is just. We know he's just with too many examples of, of his punishing even his own people. Uh, that won't work. After a little while, another apprentice spoke up. He said, let's just tell them there's no hurry. There's no hurry. Satan said, that's it. Let's go. That's our message. That's our temptation. Tell them all there's no hurry. Yes, there's a heaven. Yes, there's a hell. But you've got all the time in the world. The way is not easy because time is limited and then finally, the way is not easy because the judgment of Jesus is final. The judgment of Jesus is final. He poses something here, the Lord does, in, in Luke 13. Verse 26, Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, Lord, and you taught in our streets. Then he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. You see, 
having a past association with good people is without actually submitting to God doesn't do us any good. That's what Jesus is saying. His judgment is final. No, no, no pleading, no afterlife plan. It is once the door is shut. Once the door is shut. And so the way of the Lord is not easy. We've seen that the example of Jesus shows this. We have seen that all these questions about salvation shows this. We've seen that, that we often get sidetracked into speculation, but that makes it even more, more uh, difficult for us. We've seen that the Lord himself says, you've got to strive and agonize yourself in a personal way if you're going to please me. We have seen that the door is narrow. We've seen that time is limited and judgment is indeed a final. What a wonderful paragraph Jesus leaves for us here in Luke 13. For us to be able to peep into his life and notice the conversation between he and some unnamed individual who asked him about salvation. This reminds us of how important it is how important it is, it is for us to be walking the way of righteousness all the time before our God. It reminds us that following Jesus does not come at no cost. He, he expects us to know what lays ahead. He expects us to be ready, to be determined. Like he told Peter, Peter, these rough things are going to happen, but you follow me. If you're subject to the Lord's invitation uh, this evening, please make that known right now as we stand together. As we sing, let's all sing together.